Hello, my name is Eva, and today we are going to talk about a medieval surgeon known to have treated Henry V, but we'll get to all that in due course. Henry V of England, who ruled from 1413 to 1422, is remembered as one of the most militarily successful of English monarchs, with his most famous victory secured at the Battle of Agincourt. But that might all have come to naught. Henry V might never have lived to be the first English monarch since the Norman Conquest 300 years earlier to use not French, not Latin, but English in his written instructions. Henry V might never have been immortalized by the bard himself, William Shakespeare, in one of his king's plays. For Henry V could, and as it stood then, should have died at the tender age of sixteen. This is the story of John Bradmore, court surgeon and quite possibly the saviour of Henry V. But to tell the story of John Bradmore, we must first recount the history of three Henrys. Henry a king, Henry a hotspur, and Henry a prince. Shrewsbury, England Late May in the year 1403, Henry Percy, eldest son of the Earl of Northumberland, that great landowner in the north of England, has marched down from the north to the borders of Wales to meet the king's forces. For he and Henry IV, once great allies, are now bitter enemies. The king once known as Henry Bolingbroke, fought and won his crown from Richard II, and there by his side was Henry Percy. Once he was king, Henry IV tasked Henry Percy to subdue the ever-rebellious Scots, and Henry Percy obliged, earning for himself the nickname of Harry Hotspur for his speed in battle. And Henry IV had, long before the crown was placed on his head, promised lands and monies to the Percy family for their support. Yet now, four years after that crowning that Henry Percy and his family had supported, lands promised to the Percys had been given to others, higher taxes were demanded of them, and worse still, the king despite all his promises, had never ransomed Henry Percy's brother-in-law, whom the Welsh, during their rebellion, had taken as prisoner. Now, Henry Percy had come to the borders of Wales to right the wrongs done to his family, and set free those northern men who were held against their will in the Welsh lands. Henry IV as much a military man as Henry Percy, had other ideas. The Percy family's power and influence in the northern part of his kingdom had grown a little too big for comfort. The Percy family demanded preeminence 
even above that of the king's own son, young Henry, Prince of Wales. A mere lad of sixteen, yes, but a lad who had already shown a keen military mind. Now the Percys roamed the land, hoping to take by force that which the king had already denied them in silence, even though he had bestowed many other favours on them. Henry the Fourth thought not of the Percys as his enemies, at least not yet. But by the 12th of July, 1403, it was apparent that the Percy men meant to fight the king's men, and by July the 20th, the king's forces and those of Percy's stood against each other across the Severn River. Despite all attempts at parley for peace by the attending abbots on each side, battle was joined on the 21st of July, 1403. Henry IV had brought with him his son, the young Henry, and a retinue of archers, advisers, and surgeons, but not the court surgeon, John Bradmore. John Bradmore's date of birth is unknown, but we do know that by 1400 he was sufficiently skilled and not least respected enough to acquire a position as court surgeon. His was a medical family, as his daughter, Agnes, married a surgeon, while John Bradmore's brother, Nicholas Bradmore, was also a surgeon. It seems that John Bradmore achieved the high standing which went with being surgeon in the household of the king, while his brother, who became a considerable landowner, seemed to have achieved financial success from his profession of treating noblemen. Perhaps the family's good fortune came about through John's court connections, for being a surgeon at the time did not automatically belay on the person the same kind of prestige which came with being a physician. Now, in our day, a surgeon is recognized as a specialized physician. But in the medieval world, indeed right up to the Enlightenment, surgeons were regarded as craftsmen rather than physicians. University-trained physicians in the medieval era specialized in knowledge of ancient medical tracts, prognosis, and the determination of an illness. Some, even famous physicians of the early medieval period, absolutely balked at the craft and art of cutting open the human body. And, well, frankly speaking, surgery was a difficult challenge in that age with little opportunity and concept of hygienic procedures and a high infection rate which caused many surgical patients to, as they say, survive the surgical procedure but die of the infection. Most surgeons in England operated as barber surgeons with their razors and practiced hand-eye coordination put to use when pulling teeth, trimming beards, and sewing off limbs. John Bradmore was one such surgeon, 
and he was, in addition to this, also known as a skilled metal worker, known to produce his own highly effective tools. But around 1403, John Bradmore came under suspicion for turning his considerable talents towards making counterfeit coins, and for this he was imprisoned, and it was from one of the king's dungeons that he would have heard about the Battle of Shrewsbury on the 21st of July, 1403. John Bradmore would later learn what we also know today, that the fighting in that battle and on that day was fierce, with no quarter given between the king's men and Henry Percy's northern army. Henry Percy's army proved a formidable foe, not least the Cheshire bowmen whose longbows cut down high-born and low on the king's side causing several of the king's allies to flee the field. It was the first time the longbow had been used so effectively. Young Henry would take note, for the king's sixteen-year-old son was there. He was there in the midst of it, standing his ground as he commanded a force on the king's left wing. The battle swung this way and that for hours, and at some point during the fighting, Henry Percy declared one last charge. A charge right up towards the king in an effort to take out the king himself. At some point during this surge, a cry went out, Henry Percy King, suggesting that Henry IV had been killed by one of Percy's men. Absolute confusion ruled. Yet, the king's body, or rather King Henry's head on a spike, was not visible. And soon thereafter, soldiers could hear the king himself raise his voice above the din and shout, Henry Percy is dead! And that was the truth. Henry Percy had been struck down in that very charge he had ordered against the king. The battle ended soon thereafter with victory to Henry IV. According to the contemporary chronicler Thomas Walsingham, the confusion of the battle had made it impossible to ascertain who was wounded and who was not, and few had even seen that the young Henry, the king's son, was seriously injured. As Henry Percy's men had made a final charge towards the king himself, the young Henry had defended his position on the left wing and in so doing had been hit by an arrow right through his cheek, right under his eye. But rather than being carried off the battlefield, he had remained cheering on his men-at-arms until victory was secured. Only then would he allow himself to be taken to the surgeon's tent. The young Henry's wound must have horrified those who saw it, for it would have been considered fatal. While the arrow could be removed, a soldier's life was surely done when the inevitable infection set in. One can only imagine the apprehension felt by the blood-stained knights as they carried the heir to the English throne to the medical tents 
not knowing if he would live, but fearing the worst. None of the attending barber surgeons knew what to do, or more probably dared to do anything, for everyone must have had the death of Richard I in their minds. He had died in 1199 when a wound from a crossbow bolt turned infectious. It was all too common a death. It was then that someone, it is not known whom, remembered John Bradmore. And at the urging of King Henry IV, John Bradmore was brought out into the light of London and post-haste taken to Kenilworth Castle, a royal residence situated in the safety of Warwickshire where the young Henry had been moved after the battle. So, just to get the geography here, Henry was moved some 69 miles, around 111 kilometers, in a southeasterly direction from Shrewsbury, while John Bradmore traveled some 90 miles, around 140 kilometers, northwest, to attend the young Henry at Kenilworth. It must have looked bad. It must have looked impossible to treat, let alone heal, the young Henry. Yet John Bradmore set to work, with the barest hint of a quiver touching his hand, but full of resolve in his heart. In fact, he himself wrote a detailed medical account of what he did in the next few weeks, and his document, known as the Philomena, is preserved to this day and gives us a unique insight into the work of a medieval surgeon. John Bradmore's first concern was how to pull out the arrow without causing further damage. By the time he arrived, other surgeons had already attempted to do so, causing the shaft to break and leaving the arrowhead embedded in the young Henry's skull, inches away from vital arteries and even closer to his brain. How, then, to remove the arrowhead without killing the prince? Well, John Bradmore, the metal worker, set to work constructing the tools he needed. This must have taken skill and not least patience. John Bradmore kept his head, and first he made a series of peath wood probes of increasing diameter and length, which he covered in linen and dipped in honey. Honey was even then known to be good for wounds. Even the ancient Egyptians had used it. Today we know for a fact that honey possesses antioxidant, antibacterial, and anti-inflammatory properties. John Bradmore gently enlarged the wound to the absolute consternation of the king's men, and he enlarged it in circular movements till he reached the arrowhead deep in the skull. One can only imagine the pain suffered by the young Henry. But John Bradmore continued and invented another unique instrument, a pair of concave tongs, or, to put it in the words of John Bradmore himself, 
It was a screw ran through the middle of the tongs, whose ends were well-rounded both on the inside and outside, and even the end of the screw which was entered into the middle was well-rounded overall in the way of a screw so that it should grip better and more strongly. With these tongs, John Bradmore extracted the arrowhead. He then cleansed the wound with white wine and his own special ointment of honey, flour, barley, and turpentine, and for the next twenty days he never left the side of the young Henry as the latter drifted in and out of consciousness, but crucially never suffered the dreaded fever. And on the twenty-third day, the young Henry, Prince of Wales, heir to the throne of England, rose from his bed, cured and suffering no brain damage. This piece of incredible surgery was written about by contemporaries as well as later physicians, for the odds had been astronomically against John Bradmore's success. The jubilation and elation at the young Henry's survival was deep and long-lasting. For his service, John Bradmore was awarded a yearly income of around 10 sovereigns, which is around £30,000 in 2023 money, and by 1408 he had been appointed searcher of the Port of London, a very lucrative and influential position. John Bradmore is said to have died around 1412, so he would not have been around to follow Henry V as the now grown King of England sailed for France in 1415 to fight the French in the ongoing Hundred Years' War. But for the skill of John Bradmore, Henry V would not have been able to lead his men to that outstanding victory which was the 1415 Battle of Agincourt, a victory which would eventually entail the Treaty of Troyes in 1420, which recognized Henry V's son as heir to the crown of France. And though this treaty was contested the moment Henry V fell ill and died in 1422, an unsung hero of the English success in that part of the Hundred Years' War must surely be the surgeon and metal worker John Bradmore, who saved the life of a prince so he could live to become a king. I hope you liked this episode. If yes, please consider telling your friends about this podcast restless times in history. Until next time, I have been Eva, and thanks so much for listening.